This is Lead with a Question. We have this campaign that's called Just Ask. And the whole thing is to teach people how to check in with their friends about their mental health. Because if if I do have thoughts of suicide and someone says, hey, I've been thinking about you, you don't have to respond. I just wanted you to know that I really care about you and know that I want you here. That can change the trajectory of, of my life. Hi, I'm Rob Callen. We live in a time when people are seeing that the old way of doing business is broken and that leading into the future requires something new, a deeper focus on humanity, the courage to let go of power and ego, a desire to nurture the conditions for co-creation, and the bravery not to have all the answers. On this show, I, along with my friends Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen, connect with guests who embody these principles. And whether household names or not, they've shattered the status quo, often as misfits, to shape the future with others and achieve miraculous things in work and life. When you read a really moving story or watch a powerful film, you can often experience a taste of what the characters are feeling. You grieve with them as they suffer loss. You cheer them on to victory and share in their celebrations. Our capacity to see ourselves vicariously in others' lives is one of the most human things about us. So today, let's spend a few minutes with a woman whose upbringing in Asia, identity as a member of the LGBTQ community, and a person of faith, combined with her compassionate work in suicide prevention, enable her to seek to understand before seeking to be understood. She'll take us on an eye-opening journey, guided by the question, what possibilities can empathy unlock? A conversation with Lizzie Perkins on this episode of Lead with a Question. I grew up mostly overseas in Beijing, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. And when I was 18 years old, I moved to Utah for university. And shocker, there was a very big culture difference. And so it took me a while to kind of find my footing and find where I belonged. And then once I did and I started moving forward in my, my school path, I decided to, I wanted to work with people. I wanted to listen to them, work with them. And so I got into advertising research and strategy from school. I ended up doing an internship in Miami and moving to Boulder to work at a, an ad agency working with American airlines, Hershey's chocolate, Domino's pizza, you know, everything that's good for self-care and the soul. (laughs) (laughs) After a few years doing that, I was missing something with a little bit more purpose. Uh, There's only so many focus groups you can do on why kids and adults love chocolate, you know? So... Although there's nothing wrong with chocolate. Oh, no. 
I am a very big fan of, you know, chocolates of all kinds, except for Whoppers. Those are not a fan. (laughs) (laughs) And then from there, I moved to a social cause based advertising agency in Salt Lake City, where I got to do work with suicide prevention, opioid abuse prevention, uh, working with mental health for parents and students. And um, it's it's been very life-changing and kind of perspective-shifting, learning so much about mental health and underlying causes of not success and failure, but predictors of happiness and health long-term. And one of the biggest things that I've noticed is no matter what the issue is, connection and working with other people is Mm. one of the biggest predictors of future happiness, health, and success. Interesting. Yeah. We'd love to dig in a little bit more you know, in this conversation down the road, um, as far as some of those campaigns, some of those causes you've been a part of, if you could, uh, why don't you expand upon this notion of, you know, a misfit experience? We, we've talked about that in the past collectively. Um, we've all identified as misfits. Um, and to a large degree, we're seeing this more as, as, um, a uniting kind of subject matter where people can, you know, look back at their misfit stories and, you know, recognize their differences, recognize their gifts. Um, but what was your misfit journey like? Uh, you kind of alluded a little bit uh, about that with kind of the overseas, kind of growing up overseas, maybe start there and, um, give us a little bit more details about that experience and, and kind of what you've learned about yourself, uh, up to this point. I would say my life has been full of juxtapositions and seeming contradictions, right? An American girl growing up in China, a nerdy athlete, a bisexual Mormon. It kind of took me a long time to define my identity with all those seeming discrepancies. But a large part of my journey to my current self-perception has really been due to the people around me and the media that I've consumed was one reason why I got into advertising in the first place. Right. Uh, yeah. Growing up in China, it was interesting because I didn't realize initially when I was little that I was other. Um, kids were kids. I spoke English. I spoke Chinese. Um, and it felt very normal and natural to play with other kids. But it was kind of when I hit that point in middle school where you know, puberty, I shot up and at five foot seven in sixth grade when everyone else is much shorter, that was like, now I'm physically standing out more than I had in the past. Um, and then in addition to that, a lot of my friends, um, their parents kind of guided their interests and their time after school towards tutoring, Mm. music lessons, things like that, where my parents kind of let me just run free. And I ended up playing a lot of sports. I played rugby. I played soccer. I played basketball. Gotcha. You played rugby and survived. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, 
did end up in the hospital quite a few times, but, uh, yeah, there was kind of this feeling of I'm, I'm different than everyone else. So around junior high is when you like puberty hit, you started to maybe physically feel different, look different by contrast. You know, I want to kind of go dig in a little bit deeper on a theme that just kind of like popped up when you were talking. And it's, it's something that I think uh, most of us can recognize, but I think it's worth a, a little bit further discussion. You know, childhood, you know, when we are kids and children at play, like the things that we let get in the way or are barriers for us to connect, or maybe things that cause self-doubt or things tied to our self-worth, um, our view of, of ourselves you know, uh, insecurities, perhaps, you know, let's talk about that a little bit. What you, what is it about children at play that just, you know, those things don't matter. Um, I, I feel like I, I recall like my children are a little bit older now, but taking them to the park, for example, it didn't take too long, you know, as like a five-year-old or six-year-old for them to just assimilate with what's going on on the playground. And they just jump in the mix and everyone kind of ha- figures out their role kind of quickly, like, oh, that person's the leader. I'm going to be the follower. Here's the game. I don't know. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. What what are your thoughts about you know children at play? And I think it's uh, there could be a, a nice book written about that. Perhaps there are. Yeah, I think when you're a child at play, all you're thinking about is is this fun, right? And you don't necessarily think about those things as adults become barriers to acceptance, to belonging, to fun. But one thing that I think is pretty amazing, there's this concept called neoteny, which is a study in any kind of animal where do you retain childhood features, particularly the ability Mm. to play. And Throughout the animal kingdom, you kind of see bears will roll around on the ground or will play. And humans have the largest ability to retain that. But we also have kind of the biggest inhibition around doing so. Because, right, as an adult, now it's not just, is this fun? It's, is this fun? Do I look weird? Right. Is this appropriate for me to be doing in this setting with these people? And there are all these thoughts that just kind of run rampant of, is this okay? When in actuality, I have never felt annoyed at anyone laughing or, you know, playing. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's like there's these uh, kind of layers of context that may or may not be real, right? That we perceive about how we're acting. And I always think about like at a dance, right? Everybody's so worried about how people are perceived, like how they're thinking yes. about, like, oh, they're watching me dance and they're, they're, they're just thinking about that. And yet everybody's doing that, 
So <laughs> they're all focused on, right? <laughs> right? So L- life you, is a dance, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> We're all feeling this way all the time, right? Yeah. And then nobody stop. like, I mean, unless somebody's just way out there, but like, even so they're just going to appreciate like, wow, they're just going like, they're just full on dance. So, you know, like what, and yeah. And why, you know, what happens? Cause it's kind of within ourselves then, right. To say like, oh, okay, well, you know, we, and then we kind of lose that spirit of, you know, playfulness, which, you know, we know in creativity is powerful, right? Like that's where a lot of the magic happens. And as adults, I mean, I feel like we're trying to find a way to tap into that childlike play, the, the curiosity, the, the, how can we connect quicker, you know, and remove these barriers like in professional relationships, in our personal relationships, you know, I feel like we've been programmed as adults and socially constructed to, to, to have all these different warped views of how we can be connected or how we should view ourselves or how we do view ourselves. So what, what are some things that we can do as adults that can cut through so we can get to that childlike play quicker? There was something I was talking about yesterday with my sister uh, we were talking about how so often at work or in social settings, the easiest thing to connect over really quickly are typically negative passions. For example, it's really easy for me to say, oh, I hate work. I had to work so many long hours this week. And no matter what your profession is, you can be like, oh, yeah, I also had that experience. Right. but it's far less often and more powerful when you can connect over positive passions. We had a friend, the reason my sister and I were talking about this is we had a friend who came to, we, we had this party and she loves Sharpies and she brought her collection of Sharpies so she could kind of do a little show and tell why she loves them, why they're amazing even astronauts can use them in space because the ink flows differently than like, <laughs> yeah. through gravity. Anyway, I learned all this stuff and right. She could have had, you know, in behavioral psychology, it's called that spotlight effect of, Oh no, people are watching me. Right. Is this weird? And instead of, you know, p- kind of putting that scrutiny on ourselves, I think one way to really cut through and, make long lasting connections instead of focusing on some of those negative passions that are quick, easy connections. It's really, what are some of my positive passions? Do I juggle? Mm. Do I love Cristiano Ronaldo? Like, what is it that I'm really Mm. passionate about? And even if you aren't passionate about the same things, it kind of gives you an insight into who I am as a person right? and establishes those connections that, lead to a more positive relationship moving forward. Yeah. It's like, it's like the, and those things, even if there's, you know, I mean, now and granted, like as you're talking about Sharpies, I'm like, yeah, actually they are amazing. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, like they just flow smoothly and all that. But like, actually the other thing is, is even if it's not a direct connection, there's something about somebody showing passion for something they love that inspires you to f- feel the same. Right. Like, and then think about those things that are like, wow, what am I passionate about? Uh, you know, to your point. One of the things that that stood out to me when you were talking is when I was in college, I learned, I learned the true difference between sympathy and empathy. 
right? Sympathy is when you project your experience by connecting dots of maybe somebody else's experience. So I think that's where, you know, the quicker kind of negative um, connecting points people are making is, is actually through sympathy. It's, it's usually like someone can identify like, oh, I've had a similar experience and they project their experience onto others. And, and it's, it's deep and in, in, entrenched in feelings for sure, but they're typically negative emotions. Whereas empathy is a lot harder because going along the lines of the positive aspects that, that are healthier to connect on and probably more rare, people aren't brave enough to, to share their passion so freely. Right. And so empathy is the opposite in the sense that it's not about you projecting a sim- similar situation or experience and connecting with others uh, based on feelings. It's more of, can you truly see their experience for what their experience was or is? And it's really hard to do because first you got to get out of your own head. Right. And you can't be self, it can't be anchored from a, self-centered kind of positioning, which I think sympathy tends to do more than empathy. And so empathy is, you know, I, I, I think it's, if you're brave enough to share or show or shine with your passions, right. You know, I think that's more of a positive connection where people can connect uh, with empathy, you know? I love that idea because it really is I mean, it's all about perception. Someone right. else might not view it as brave for me to say, oh, I'm really passionate about museums. But for me personally, that might be hard to say. And in a workplace environment, like at my current workplace, there have been a few times when I've been able to say, hey, I'm really passionate about XYZ. Mm-hmm. For example, mental health. like." being LGBTQ plus and being in a religious environment growing up, that was also also a place where I kind of felt like a misfit and had some mental health challenges with anxiety of, am I good enough? Will I be enough? Are people going to judge me? And in my current workplace environment, I'm able to, you know, voice that passion around mental health and, healthy relationships, connections, and how that impacts people's lives for the positive. And my managers, my coworkers saw that passion. And guess what? That's what I work on. Because I was able to, you know, voice that passion, even though it was a little bit scary to say, Hey, I've dealt a lot with anxiety. Hey, I have a therapist. Hey, I, right. I am in this world of mental health. Um, I was able to end up working on things that I'm really passionate about as opposed to, you know, being assigned to a a project that maybe doesn't resonate with me. And it was scary, but in the end it was so worth it. Well, let's, let's dig into that a little bit, you know, um, share, share some of your experiences with these type of campaigns that obviously you are very passionate about. Yeah. I think one thing that, you know, all over the world, we kind of struggle with is, especially in America, we're always in this realm of treatment. There, no one has funding for suicide prevention until there's kind of a contagious rise in suicide. No one has money to 
work at drug treatment centers until there's a huge spike in overdoses. And so um, one thing that we've really tried to do in some of our our campaigns here, uh, for example, for our suicide prevention campaign, instead of focusing on the, hey, you're in a crisis right now, call this number or do this thing. We've tried to go more upstream earlier on in the prevention cycle to say, what can we do to prevent there being a crisis? And I love that. Yeah. In Utah, we have this campaign that's called Just Ask. And the whole thing is to teach people how to check in with their friends about their mental health. Because if, if I do have thoughts of suicide and someone says, hey, I've been thinking about you. You don't have to respond. I just wanted you to know that I really care about you. And if you are thinking about suicide, like know that I want you here. That, that can change the trajectory of, of my life. Totally. Yeah. And so trying to plant those seeds of how do you connect to prevent any, any kind of crisis, but just yeah, moving earlier on. So instead of being stuck in this treatment cycle, you know, if you can connect about one thing earlier on in someone's struggle, maybe they never get to that point where they abuse drugs or mm. they plan a suicide. Yeah. And I love that it's it's singular and focused, right? As like just ask, but it's it's really broad because you could just ask, like, hey, how are you doing today? Right. Right. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I have a friend who uh he shares the story years ago. He was in the thick of some severe depression, like really bad. And yeah, he was, he was contemplating, right. Like taking his own life. And it was, it was so bad. He didn't see a way out. He didn't have a lot of people, you know, in his life, um, at the time. Uh, and I think there was, it was a strained relationship with his family, like his father and just no, no place to go really. Right. And he's out on his own. Um, and yeah, it was like a, a phone call, just random. Uh, you know, somebody you know, happened to be from church and the guy's just like, Hey, I, I'm thinking about you, you know, how are you doing? And he just like, let it all out. Right. He's just like, I, I'm in a terrible place right now. And, and he's like, what, wow. Like, um, what can I do to help? And just kind of helped encourage him to feel like, Hey, I've got somebody here that cares about me enough to first of all, call, uh, and then just encourage me. And he looks back and this is like 20 years later that was a definitive point in his life where he, he decided to not take his life because of that one call. And, and then he's also decided, Hey, I'm going to be that person who's calling people who's reaching out. So now he's looking for those moments to, to do that for others. You know, on, on the surface level, I could see, you know, maybe parents struggling to help their kids or teenagers with depression or suicide thoughts. And I think sometimes it's a little skewed, you know, they think, Oh, I need to motivate them. You know, don't, don't have those thoughts or like, you know, they think they're going to solve it through some type of motivation or some type of encouragement. But in reality, you know, kind of what you just shared, Lizzie, and then this, the story you just shared, Chris, it, it seems like one of the main antidotes to suicide prevention or depression is connectedness. And so, you know, the just ask campaign sounds like it's a great first step, like you said, like a planting a seed for that. But then to take that a step further, I, I wonder what people could do to to create better patterns of connecting with other people, you know, to to be more top of mind. Like, 
you know, when you have those thoughts, it's not by accident, you know, uh, some people may see that as a spiritual guidance, right? Where, you know, someone, maybe a family member comes to top of mind for you. And how often do we not act on those things? You know, like if we don't make a call, you know, sometimes I, I feel inspired to write a note to somebody and, and sometimes I don't do it. And, you know, in talking about it in this context, you know, I have regrets for not doing it. So, you know, I wonder how, how you could take a campaign like Just Ask to, to, to connect, you know, find those connecting patterns for people to, to kind of like encourage and inspire people to connect, right? I think one thing that it goes back to is something you brought up earlier about empathy. I've had a lot of people ask me, oh, what can, you know, I do from a religious background to show that I love and care for friends with mental health issues or friends who are LGBTQ plus or friends who are people of color who I can't, who I, you know, feel like I can't connect with. And one thing that I always say to them is feel, don't fix. Right. They're not asking you to fix their problem. Same thing with teens and their parents, right? If a parent is worried about their teen, their teen doesn't necessarily want their parent to fix the problem for them there's a little bit of confidence that is built when you kind of solve your own problems. But what people really need is just for you to feel with them, to feel for them. That's the key. Feel with versus feel for. Yeah. Brene Brown talks about how people need to be seen, heard and valued. And I feel like so often in especially workplace settings, it's so easy to feel, Oh, okay, I'm being seen. My boss sees the work I do. My coworkers see the work I do. But sometimes it's a little bit harder to feel heard and valued. Because do people really, you know, hear what you're communicating, whether it's said or unsaid? And do you feel valued? Compensation's part of that, but so is purpose. So is a lot of the other factors that don't always come across my the times in my career when I felt most valued it's been because my coworkers and people I work with they appreciate the work that I'm doing they give me time to finish projects instead of just you know rushing things to be done and so I think that's one thing that in this world of how do we co-create work together and kind of make magic happen it only happens when people are feeling valued and heard. Right. I think one of the the biggest challenges in the workplace is everyone is viewing it from their individual experience where they're waiting for empathy from others. Right. And I think we got to somehow flip the script where from an individual pathway, we seek to empathize. And I think the more we embody it, the more, people, other people can experience it, right? The more pervasive it's going to be in the workplace, right? And then another thought too is empathy is is usually viewed in terms of like challenges or um, tough situations people are going through. But what if that was charged or channeled in a more positive way? What if, I don't know, for a lack of better phrase, what if it, there was more of a creative empathy that existed where people could connect over 
you know, passion projects over things that are more constructive versus kind of like wallowing in sorrows and like tough times and our challenges, you know, like, I think that's a higher order of empathy where it's more creative based where, and that's where co-creation comes into play. So we'd love to kind of talk to you about co-creative experiences you've had in, in the workplace or in, in your type of work with others, if you want to expand upon that. Yeah, I I think co-creation is so important in a workplace. If you think about nearly any type of project, one person doing it alone is never going to be as good as two. Even if the second person, like when I was growing up, when my family would be doing a project, I would always be assigned to be DJ and just play music because <laughs> I wasn't really good at doing necessarily the like, here, we're going to redo our garden, like <laughs> dig a hole. And so there's always a space for people to be there, participate and add value, even if it's not what you typically would assume you need. And so I think there's a little bit of an artful nature to figure out how does everyone fit? What's the purpose of the project? And then what's the purpose of each individual? And especially with my work in mental health communications, we work with experts who know way more about the subject matter than I do. I learn from them every day. And while I think I know a fair bit about, about mental health, the work's always going to be better when we check it with experts. And so that's in advertising. There's, there's no way to create effective ads. If you don't work with your client, if you don't work with the expert in the subject matter. Right. I, one, one of the things that Chris and I struggle with is this concept of expertise though. Um, because sometimes, um, you know, we can get tired of hearing from, you know, sources in the government, like, oh, the experts weighed in on this or, you know, in politics, um, even workplace, right? It's like, um, does there have to be a committee approval for things? So I, I don't know. I, I think moving forward, uh, I, 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 I'm trying to reframe you know, this notion of expertise as to people that have deep passion for something and they're curious about something. Yes. I want to hear from those folks because they've taken the time to, to really play in that area. Right. Um, I guess that's just a different, a, a nuance on how it's categorized, right. Coming off as the expert or, or someone who's passionate. I would add to that. Cause I think in the same light that we're talking about, Hey, everybody has a place, everybody belongs, right? There is a space for deep expertise, but the challenge happens when that expertise becomes very top heavy, right? And this person assumes that they don't need input or co-creation or collaboration or partnership from really anybody to describe what they're, and, and granted, like they may have the depth of perspective, that may be like near prophetic, like they may be seeing things right. That are nobody else is seeing, but like, how does it fit into the, the whole? Um, and that's, that's the, the nuance or the art of, 
uh, and, and essentially, like, I, I think we think about it like, hey, it's, it's the future, right? Because we can find a lot of a lot of those knowledge worker answers we can get from AI, right? Like these algorithms, Google can spit it out in five seconds. I can ask Google an expert level question and probably have an answer in right. a video tutorial from YouTube faster than I can get from this person who's you know sitting in this group, right? Um, or in a, in a workplace. But yeah, then, then, then it becomes what you're talking about earlier, Lizzie, we've been talking about is essentially like, how do you harness that creative energy where mm-hmm. that's going to give us something that we didn't have coming into this meeting before, right? Like it's, it's almost revelatory and it's something that we didn't expect. It's the magic. And when we, you know, and I, it is not spend time with Imagineers. That was, that was the magic of what they would experience, but they would set the conditions, right? They would set the, right. uh, the, the cultural factors in motion. And then the, the, the actually, DJ in the, in the garden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then they'd actually enjoy the fact that like, Oh, that was surprising. I didn't know. Right. Or like they'd say, Steve jobs would like pivot 180 degrees and disagree with himself. Right. In a meeting. And people would say, well, that's not a CEO's not to put like they, they didn't under they didn't know what to do with that. Cause it was like, you just set a hard position at the beginning of this meeting. Now you're saying you were wrong. <laughs> it's like, yeah, because what you're presenting and what we're talking about is way better. Just kind of having that fluidity is, it can be hard. I was going to say, ultimately, you know, the responsibility lies with the, the expert, the, the person who's pegged themselves as the expert, right. Is to kind of reframe, you know, their role as, as a co-creator or how to open up and, and gain better co-creative characteristics. Yeah. I would say the important thing is right. Being an expert without an ego because yes. right in suicide prevention, it's like, there is a wrong way to say things. If you say committed suicide, that can be triggering, that can be unsafe. And so there are things that there are definite things to avoid and right. An expert can help with that. But if you have an expert with an ego, then everything they say is right. And there's no room to co-create because they've set themselves up as the creator. I had an experience with, with this at work where there was a client and there was, you know, someone on our team who both had expertise in the same area. Mm. And uh, they were butting heads <laughs> the whole the whole time we it's worked common. together, right. and our team was trying to figure out, okay, what can we do to make these these two people work better together? Because both of them are so smart, both of them have that expertise, have that passion in their subject area, but we we kind of went back and forth talking about this, and someone was like, it's because they have the same personality. It's because they have the same passion, the same expertise. And I was like, that's completely right. That's why there was this constant one-upmanship of, I know more than you. I'm better than you. And it wasn't until one of them was able to kind of sacrifice their ego, lay that to rest, that we were able to create some really amazing work. Defending their position to to the death almost. Yeah, it's like, and then how do you get into that like... um, mental kind of creative jujitsu where you allow for (laughs) right that fluid nature of things you know take the ego out of it and uh and you know and i guess the question i have for that or for you is like not not why is it so hard for people because i think it's there's a human nature thing involved in this right um but how do they accelerate like past this how do we 
breakthrough and in, in, in not in say not just creative context, but now that creative contexts are uh, in many other like it, proliferating, right? Like everywhere should is is essentially there's a need for creativity because begging for it. Yeah. yeah, that's the future, right? So how do how do people break through, especially if they've been in the context of doing it in an expert model way, like Ian's described, you know, or just ego based, right? Like how do they break through that? That's a very tough question that I think people have been asking for a long time, how to, how to get rid of ego. From my perspective, there are two things that kind of pop to mind. And one is curiosity and play, like we talked about. If you're able to be curious about new things, even if I'm an expert in a specific topic, if I'm able to kind of lower my ego and explore topics, explore things that are more unknown, then that's going to give me practice with kind of laying that ego down of, okay, I don't know everything. This is a topic I know nothing about, but it's fun to learn. So I think curiosity and play is one, one way to do that. I think another way to do that is what we've been talking about with empathy is if, even if I'm an expert in this subject matter, if I'm able to be empathetic to your experience with mental health, even though it's different than mine, and even though I might think, oh, well, I know more than they do. Right. It's all about, can I understand where you're coming from? And if I can truly feel with you, then it'll be easier to lay that ego down because there's, it gives me a why. Mm. Yeah. I like that. Um, it seems too. There's like, and it, and it did like that. That's the perfect segue to, okay. And then, and then we're in doing so we're going to build something, you know, uh, well, not only that we haven't done before, but that could really be amazing. Right. And I don't know that everybody's experienced that before, but I, the beauty, that's why like part of what break we're, what we've been inspired by is the creatives, right? Because, you know, innately, you know, people, you know, like you who are just making an impact on the world every day in a creative way, right? Looking for these ways to connect people through, you know, empathy, connect dots, collaborate, brain trust, you know, and, and what that can do, right? For, and, and then what that can do when applied to, you know, products and services and, and anything, right, in life. But um, especially in those places where it's just been kind of rinse and repeat. Right. It's like, okay, we're keeping the boat afloat, you know, everybody in the, in the, in the engine room, right? Like keep it going. Right. And yet nobody's stopping to say, Hey, let's, what if we build a different boat? Right. Like let's look at the whole (laughs) blueprint here, upgrade this entire thing, right. Make it different. I think it's, I I think it's important too. like, you know, this, this, um, kind of feeling of, or desire to challenge the status quo. It's not that we have to scrap the old boat completely and start with a new boat. I think that's where people are guarded, you know, in, in organizations. I think there's, it's just having a, it's a reframe, right? It's like, it's not, we're not totally in destitute. Like we're not, you know, things aren't as bad as we probably amplify them, there's building blocks, right? There's things that do work. So it's like, how can we take the best of, you know, in these work working environments and then create and build, you know, to make it even better to improve upon, 
right? So it's like, I think that's where there's some friction with the old guard and the new energy, you know, when it comes to the future of work. And so I think the new energy has to be empathetic towards things that are good, you know, like there, maybe it's a question of gratitude as well, right? It's like, what things already work in our lives, you know, that we may take for granted, right? Um, those are things that I, I'm yeah. wrestling with no, too. It's good, just that, that's a that good perspective, point. you know? That's a really good point too, because if, and I have approached things like this at times, right? I know people have, right? Where it's just the assumption is, hey, it's two stories, right? You right. got the rebel forces and you got the empire and freaking, <laughs> right. freaking Darth Vader, the boss, right? <laughs> like, and that's, you know, and it's, it's just all out war, right? In the universe. Right. But to your point, it's like, how do you appreciate, okay, here's the things that are great, right? That have worked. I mean, most people are in a company that has had some measure of success, right? Or some, or wherever they're at, right? Like, or even a family, it's like, hey, there's a measure of success about what they're doing. Or, um, or great leaders that have embodied principles in these environments that are challenging, right? Yeah. It's like, we can continue to learn from the leaders that have survived those environments. Yeah. And then how do you take what's great and then just amplify, right? And right. add to, uh, yeah, it gets to like the, uh, Ed Catmull thing too, about, uh, what was it, you know, success is what, 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 how did Randy describe it? We, it was like success is an assumption about there's a, there's a certain percentage of failure, right. in every, every so-called success and without stopping to break down what the percentage of failure is, you run the risk of, you know, that, that, that could emerge and it could be something right. So, the, I, but on the flip side, there is a certain percentage of success. So how do you take that? amplify it, um, not be complacent. Yeah. One time seeing that in action was I worked on Domino's. I mean, it was years after the fact, but back in 2004 ish, there was what in our company we called the, you know, Domino's pizza turnaround. And it's because they had before that point in time really focused on we're going to deliver in under 30 minutes, which meant oftentimes the pizza wasn't always the best, right? They're just trying to get that pizza made so you can get it in 30 minutes. So their delivery system was amazing, but the pizza was not. And the ad agency I worked for kind of went back to Domino's with focus group footage of people being like, Domino's pizza tastes terrible. It tastes like cardboard. It's not good. I like... I would, even though I can get pizza fast, like I'm going to get it somewhere else. And that Domino's client was able to lay down their ego and be like, okay. And yeah, to your point, it's not completely new building blocks. They didn't change everything. They kept, you know, that really great delivery service system. There you go. The and they continue to build on that with guarantees of like for your pizza, whether you pick it up or it's delivered. But they had an ad campaign that launched that was they completely redid their pizza recipe mm. and they went to those individual homes from the focus group of people who said it tasted like cardboard. It wasn't good. And the whole ad campaign was like that interview footage of them saying it tasted like cardboard with this new delivery of the upgraded pizza and everyone being like, oh, 
this is good pizza. I'll pay for this. And Domino's was brave enough to put that out there that their old pizza sucked and this is their new pizza. Talk about dropping your ego, right? That you were referring to earlier. We're, we're leaning into this future. Yeah. Wow. And they saw, you know, thousands of percent of growth over the next 10 years because of that turning point where they made the decision to redo their pizza and own up to it. And, and, and there was, there was already great elements with Domino's, but you're right. Like around that time frame when, when that shift was made, like I noticed a difference in the quality of the pizza. Like I'm actually still okay with Domino's pizza, like in my mind. Um, but it's more of a, it's more of a value shift, right. Or focus shift. Right. So the focus was on the speed of delivery and then they had to return to the quality of, and the taste and experience for, of the food. Right. Mm -hmm. So sometimes organizations, they lose sight of the things that really connect to the consumers, right? They get hung up in optimizing their systems, their protocols, and it just may be an, an alignment issue of the, the wrong values or focuses at, at the moment. And that's, I think that's where we were getting at earlier with, you know, there, there are good things. It's just kind of finding that alignment and, and getting those values aligned. And in Domino's case, like the example Lizzie shared, you know, are, are organizations willing to look at the reality of where things stand now? Are they willing to pivot? Are they willing to sacrifice and make changes that are hard? It's messy, right? And we see the businesses that are struggling right now. Perhaps it starts with being able to look truly at the reality. And it starts with connecting, connecting with the people. If you're going to get to the truth in an organization, talk to your line workers, talk to the people that are having a, a miserable experience, really pop open the hood of culture and try to understand, you know, what, what's, you know, what, what are people frustrated with? Yeah, this is good. Good full circle. Um, taking that theme of just ask. Right. As right. the power of questions too. Right. For people like in any, right. Up and down the organization, like, Hey, just what, ask. Yeah. What are you feeling? Like what, what's going on in your world? Right. I, I had a friend who's a consultant and they're working with this company. It was like a, uh, uh, woodworking or like a lumber company. So they build all this stuff and they have wood. And when they got upset with the bosses, uh, and I think they were unionized, uh, or I don't remember exactly, but they had a group of guy, you know, people that worked there that they would kind of band together, right? It's typical, right? And just like, okay. And if they got upset, there was like a vibe that would kind of move through, right? The group. And so, and if they were mad at the bosses, uh, <clears throat> the response wasn't, Hey, go talk to the bosses or try to mediate this or figure it out. It was, uh, go feed the hog. And they're like, and my, my friend who's consultant, he's like, what's, who's the, what's the hog? And they took him to this back room and there's like this, it's basically a shredder of, of wood. And they would just take the wood and just dump it in there and waste it, like just grind it all. Right. And so like their response to being upset with the bosses was like, we're just going to take it out on the, on, on the bottom line. Right. <laughs> and it's, it was a stupid, it's like the stupidest thing in the world. Right. Um, <laughs> It, and it's such a waste, right? Of resources, of time, of energy. These people are upset and they're not, and, and, and it doesn't even really help them. It's just like, they think it's Wood a good chips. thing. 
yeah. chip chip on your shoulder, you know? So versus, okay. Yeah. And granted that was probably on the bosses too, or the leaders, right. To say, to just ask, right. Like, Hey, how, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and not just that, but to also intuit and to empathize, right. On the, like, and I, I like what you said earlier, and this is such a great theme about like on the front end, right. Like versus just downstream, like, you know, being thoughtful and intentional, and this has a lot to do with culture, right? Uh, leaders saying, "Hey, what kind of culture do we want to have?" You know, and, and if I were in, in their shoes, and we, you know, we see like shows like Undercover Boss that do this, but it's kind of become a trope. Like it's always like they're like always surprised, right? Like, whoa, I, I don't even know any of these people. Like this is amazing. Like, what what are they going through? Like it's like it's always the same thing. They sit down. That's like, what's sad, right? Is like they haven't integrated. Yeah, prior. yeah. You're like the whole storyline is you're disconnected from your organization. <laughs> yes. You need a major intervention, as in. Yeah. Just ask, yeah. right? Like just stop and like empathize and, you know, get, uh, get in their shoes. Right. Yeah. I think successful businesses, ventures, relationships all come down to, can you connect, feel with and empathize, uh, with the people in your life who surround you. And that's, what's going to ultimately determine health, happiness, and success. I think the the future for co-creation, I mean, it really is about being brave. Are you brave enough to ask uncomfortable questions? Are you brave enough to listen and act on the answers? Are you brave enough to share the things you're passionate about? This episode of Lead with a Question was produced by me, Rob Callen with support from my co-hosts and BraveCore founders, Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen. The music you heard was composed by Ian as part of another project he's involved in called Moon Machine. Dave Arcade created our podcast cover art. Special thanks to our guest, Lizzie Perkins, for the mission-driven things she's doing at work and in her community. Also, we really appreciate you for taking the time to co-create these conversations with us, especially when there are so many other things you could be doing. If you found any value at all in these episodes, could you do a favor, leave us a rating, even a review, wherever you're listening right now. It takes about two minutes and helps others discover the show as well. If you want to learn more about the work we're doing at BraveCore, you can check out our website at bravecore.co. The Lead with a Question podcast is a production of Brave Core LLC. Thanks for being with us.